chapter two part one of the ordeal of mark twain this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. the ordeal of mark twain by van wick brooks chapter two the candidate for life part one Quote, one is inclined to say that the source of sensibility is dried up in this people they are just they are reasonable but they are essentially not happy stendhal on love in the united states in eighteen eighty two mark twain who had been living for so many years in the east revisited the great river of his childhood and youth in order to gather material for his book life on the mississippi it was naturally a profound and touching experience and years later he told mr paine what his thoughts and memories had been he had intended to travel under an assumed name to pass unknown among those familiar scenes but the pilot of the steamer gold dust recognized him mark twain haunted the pilot-house and even as in days of old took his turn at the wheel we got to be good friends of course he said and i spent most of my time up there with him when we got down below cairo and there was a big full river for it was high-water season and there was no danger of the boat hitting anything so long as she kept in the river i had her most of the time on his watch he would lie down and sleep and leave me there to dream that the years had not slipped away that there had been no war no mining days no literary adventures that i was still a pilot happy and carefree as i had been twenty years before was it merely a sentimental regret however poignant that mark twain recorded in these words a regret for the passing of time and the charm and the hope of youth that little note of deprecation regarding his literary adventures sets one thinking it is not altogether flattering to the self-respect of a veteran man of letters and besides we say to ourselves if that earlier vocation of his had been merely happy and carefree a man of mark twain's energy and power could hardly in later life have so idealized it for idealize it he certainly did all his days he looked back upon those four years on the mississippi as upon a lost paradise i'd rather be a pilot than anything else i've ever done in my life he told his old master horace bixby i am a person he wrote to mr howells in eighteen seventy four who would quit authorizing in a minute to go to piloting if the madam would stand it quite an obsession we see and that he had found that occupation deeply actively satisfying that it seemed to him infinitely worthy and beautiful is proved not only by the tender tone in which he habitually spoke of it but by the fact that the earlier pages of life on the mississippi 
in which he pictures it are the most poetic the most perfectly fused and expressive that he ever wrote it was not a sentimental regret then that lifelong hankering for the lost paradise of the pilot-house it was something more organic and mark twain provides us with an explanation if i have seemed to love my subject he says among the impassioned pages of his book it is no surprising thing for i loved the profession far better than any i have followed since and i took a measureless pride in it a singular statement for a man to make out of the fullness of a literary life the two pillars of which if it has any pillars are nothing else than love and pride but mark twain writes those words with an almost unctuous gravity of conviction and this in so many words is what he says as a pilot he had experienced the full flow of the creative life as he had not experienced it in literature strange as that may seem we cannot question it we have simply to explain it the life of a mississippi pilot had in some special way satisfied the instinct of the artist in him in quite this way the instinct of the artist in him had never been satisfied again we do not have to look beyond this in order to interpret if not the fact at least the obsession he felt that in some way he had been as a pilot on the right track and he felt that he had lost this track if he was always harking back to that moment then it was we can hardly escape feeling with a vague hope of finding again some scent that was very dear to him of recovering some precious thread of destiny of taking some fresh start is it possible that he had in fact found himself in his career as a pilot and lost himself with that career it is a bold hypothesis and yet i think a glance at mark twain's childhood will bear it out we shall have to see first what sort of boy he was and what sort of society it was he grew up in then we shall be able to understand what unique opportunities for personal growth the career of a pilot afforded him what a social setting it was that little world into which mark twain was born it was drab it was tragic in huckleberry finn and tom sawyer we see it in the color of rose and besides we see there only a later phase of it after mark twain's family had settled in hannibal on the mississippi he was five at the time his eyes had opened on such a scene as we find in the early pages of the gilded age that weary discouraged father struggling against conditions amid which as he says a man can do nothing but rot away that kind worn wan desperately optimistic fanatically energetic mother those ragged wretched little children sprawling on the floor sopping cornbread in some gravy left in the bottom of a frying-pan 
it is the epic not only of mark twain's infancy but of a whole phase of american civilization how many books have been published of late years letting us behind the scenes of the glamorous myth of pioneering there is e h howe's story of a country town for instance that western counterpart in sodden misery of ethan frome a book which has only begun to find its public this astonishing mr howe who is so painfully honest tells us in so many words that in all his early days he never saw a woman who was not anemic and fretful a man who was not moody and taciturn a child who was not stunted from hard labor or undernourishment no wonder he has come to believe as he tells us frankly in a later book that there is no such thing as love in the world think of those villages mark twain himself has pictured for us with their shabby unpainted shacks dropping with decay the broken fences the litter of rusty cans and foul rags how like the leavings of some vast overturned scrap basket some gigantic garbage can human nature was not responsible for this debris of a too unequal combat with circumstance nor could human nature rise above it gambling drinking and murder we are told were the diversions of the capital city of nevada in the days of the gold rush it was not very different in normal times along the mississippi hannibal was a small place yet mr paine records four separate murders which mark twain actually witnessed as a boy every week he would see some drunken ruffian run amuck he saw negroes struck down and killed he saw men shot and stabbed in the streets how many gruesome experiences exclaims mr paine there appear to have been in those early days but let us be moderate everyone was not violent as for the majority of the settlers it is to the honor of mankind that history calls them heroes and if that is an illusion justice will never be realistic the gods of greece would have gone unwashed and turned gray at forty and lost their digestion and neglected their children if they had been pioneers apollo himself would have relapsed into an irritable silence a desert of human sand the barrenest spot in all christendom surely for the seed of genius to fall in john hay revisiting these regions after having lived for several years in new england wrote in one of his letters i am removed to a colder mental atmosphere i find only a dreary waste of heartless materialism where great and heroic qualities may indeed bully their way up into the glare but the flowers of existence inevitably droop and wither here mark twain was born and in a loveless household the choice of his mother's heart mr paine tells us had been a young physician of lexington with whom she had quarreled and her prompt engagement with john clemens was a matter of temper 
rather than tenderness mark twain did not remember ever having seen or heard his father laugh we are told and only once when his little brother benjamin lay dying had he seen one member of his family kiss another his father absorbed in a perpetual motion machine seldom devoted any time to the company of his children no wonder poor man the palsy of a long defeat lay upon him besides every spring he was prostrated with a nerve-racking sun pain that would have checked the humane impulses of an archangel even his mother the backbone of the family was infatuated with patent medicines painkillers health periodicals we have it from tom sawyer she was an inveterate experimenter in these things they were all we see living on the edge of their nerves a harsh angular desiccated existence like so many rusty machines without enough oil without enough power grating on their own metal little sam as everyone called him was the fifth child in this household a puny baby with a wavering promise of life it is suggested that he was not wanted mr payne speaks of him somewhere as high-strung and neurotic we are not surprised therefore to find him at three and four a wild-headed impetuous child of sudden ecstasies that sent him capering and swinging his arms venting his emotions in a series of leaps and shrieks and somersaults and spasms of laughter as he lay rolling in the grass this is the child who is to retain through life that exquisite sensibility of which so many observers have spoken once when i met him in the country says mr howells for example of his later life he had just been sickened by the success of a gunner in bringing down a blackbird and he described the poor stricken glossy thing how it lay throbbing its life out on the grass with such pity as he might have given a wounded child already in his infancy his gentle winning manner and smile make him everyone's favorite a very special little flower of life you see capable of such feeling that at twenty-three his hair is to turn gray in the tragic experience of his brother's death a flower of life a wild flower and infinitely fragile the doctor is always being called in his behalf before he grows up he is to have prophetic dreams but now another neurotic symptom manifests itself in times of family crisis at four when one of his sisters is dying at twelve after the death of his father he walks in his sleep often the rest of the household get up in the middle of the night to find this delicate little waif with his eyes shut fretting with cold in some dark corner can we not already see in this child the born predestined artist and what sort of nurture will his imagination have he is abandoned to the fervid influences of the negro slaves 
for his father had moments of a relative prosperity crouching in their cabins he drinks in wild weird tales of blood-curdling african witchcraft certainly says mr paine an atmosphere like this meant a tropic development for the imagination of a delicate child one thinks indeed of an image that would have pleased heine the image of a frail snow plant of the north quivering flaming in the furnace of the jungle mark twain appears to have been from the outset a center of interest radiating a singular potency and the more his spirit was subjected to such a fearful stimulus the more urgently he required for his normal development the calm clairvoyant guidance a pioneer child could never have had the negroes were in real charge of the children and supplied them with entertainment what other influence was there to counterbalance this one and one only an influence tragic in its ultimate consequences the influence of mark twain's mother that poor taciturn sunstruck failure john clemens was a mere pathetic shadow beside the woman whose portrait mark twain has drawn for us in the aunt polly of tom sawyer she who was regarded as a character by all the town who was said to have been the handsomest girl and the wittiest as well as the best dancer in all kentucky who was still able to dance at eighty and lived to be eighty-seven who belonged in short to the long-lived energetic side of the house directed her children we are told and we can believe it with considerable firmness and what was the inevitable relationship between her and this little boy she had a weakness says mr paine for the child that demanded most of her mother's care all were tractable and growing in grace but little sam a delicate little lad to be worried over mothered or spanked and put to bed in later life you gave me more uneasiness than any child i had she told him in fact she was always scolding him comforting him forgiving him punishing and pleading with him fixing her attention upon him exercising her emotions about him impressing it upon his mind for all time as we shall come to see that woman is the inevitable seat of authority and the fount of wisdom we know that such excessive influences are apt to deflect the growth of any spirit men are like planets in this that for them to sail clear in their own orbits the forces of gravity have to be disposed with a certain balance on all sides how often when the father counts for nothing a child becomes the satellite of its mother especially when that mother's love has not found its normal expression in her own youth we have seen that mark twain's mother did not love her husband that her capacity for love however was very great is proved by the singular story revealed 
in one of mark twain's letters more than sixty years after she had quarrelled with that young lexington doctor and when her husband had long been dead she a woman of eighty or more took a railway journey to a distant city where there was an old settlers convention because among the names of those who were to attend it she had noticed the name of the lover of her youth who could have imagined such a heartbreak as that said mr howells when he heard the story yet it went along with the fulfilment of everyday duty and made no more noise than a grave underfoot it made no noise but it undoubtedly had a prodigious effect upon mark twain's life when an affection as intense as that is balked in its direct path and repressed it usually as we know finds an indirect outlet and it is plain that the woman as well as the mother expressed itself in the passionate attachment of jane clemens to her son we shall note many consequences of this fact as we go on with our story we can say at least at this point that mark twain was quite definitely in his mother's leading strings what was the inevitable result i have said not i hope with too much presumption that mark twain had already shown himself the born predestined artist that his whole nature manifested what is called a tendency toward the creative life for that tendency to become conscious to become purposive two things were necessary it must be able in the first place to assert itself and in the second place to embody itself in a vocation to realize itself and then to educate itself to realize itself in educating itself and as we know the influences of early childhood are in these matters vitally important if jane clemens had been a woman of wide experience and independent mind in proportion to the strength of her character mark twain's career might have been wholly different had she been catholic in her sympathies in her understanding of life then no matter how more than maternal her attachment to her son was she might have placed before him and encouraged him to pursue interests and activities amid which he could eventually have recovered his balance reduced the filial bond to its normal measure and stood on his own feet but that is to wish for a type of woman our old pioneer society could never have produced we are told that the aunt polly of tom sawyer is a speaking portrait of jane clemens and aunt polly as we know was the symbol of all the taboos the stronger her will was the more comprehensive were her repressions the more certainly she became the inflexible guardian of tradition in a social regime where tradition was inalterably opposed to every sort of personal deviation from the accepted type in their remoteness from the political centers of the young republic says mr howells in the leatherwood god 
of these old middle western settlements they seldom spoke of the civic questions stirring the towns of the east the commercial and industrial problems which vex modern society were unknown to them religion was their chief interest and in the slave states it was not the abolitionist alone whose name was held as mr paine says in horror but every one who had the audacity to think differently from his neighbors jane clemens in short was the embodiment of that old-fashioned cast-iron calvinism which had proved so favorable to the life of enterprising action but which perceived the scent of the devil in any least expression of what is now known as the creative impulse she had a kind heart she was always repenting and softening and forgiving it is said that whenever she had to drown kittens she warmed the water first but this without opening any channel in a contrary direction only sealed her authority she won her points as much by kindness as by law besides tradition spoke first in her mind her hand was quicker than her heart in action she was the madonna of the hairbrush and what specifically was it that she punished those furtive dealings of huck and tom with whitewash and piracy were nothing in the world and that is why all the world loves them but the first stirrings of the normal aesthetic sense the first stirrings of individuality already i think we divine what was bound to happen in the soul of mark twain the story of huckleberry finn turns as we remember upon a conflict the author says mr paine makes huck's struggle a psychological one between conscience and the law on one side and sympathy on the other in the famous episode of nigger jim sympathy the cause of individual freedom wins years later in the mysterious stranger mark twain presented the parallel situation we noted in the last chapter we found says the boy who tells that story that we were not manly enough nor brave enough to do a generous action when there was a chance that it could get us into trouble conscience and the law we see had long since prevailed in the spirit of mark twain but what is the conscience of a boy who checks a humane impulse but boy terror as mr paine calls it an instinctive fear of custom of tribal authority the conflict in huckleberry finn is simply the conflict of mark twain's own childhood he solved it successfully he fulfilled his desire in the book as an author can in actual life he did not solve it at all he surrendered turn to the record in mr paine's biography we find mark twain in perpetual revolt against all those institutions for which his mother stood church ain't worth shucks says tom sawyer as for school he never learned to like it 
each morning he went with reluctance and remained with loathing the loathing which he always had for anything resembling bondage and tyranny or even the smallest curtailment of liberty one recalls what huck said of aunt polly just before he made his escape to the woods don't talk about it tom i've tried it and it don't work it don't work tom it ain't for me i ain't used to it the widder's good to me and friendly but i can't stand them ways she makes me get up just at the same time every morning she makes me wash they comb me all to thunder she won't let me sleep in the woodshed i got to wear them blamed clothes that just smothers me tom they don't seem to any air get through em somehow and they're so rotten nice that i can't set down nor lay down nor roll around anywheres i hain't slid on a cellar door for well it pears to be years i got to go to church and sweat and sweat i hate them ornery sermons i can't catch a fly in there i can't chaw i got to wear shoes all sunday the widder eats by a bell she goes to bed by a bell she gets up by a bell everything's so awful reg'lar a body can't stand it but mark twain did not escape to the woods literally or in any other way he never even imagined that his feelings of revolt had any justification we remember how when huck and tom were caught in some escapade they would resolve to lead a better life to go to church visit the sick carry them baskets of food and subsist wholly upon tracts that was what mark twain did not to do so says mr Payne, was dangerous flames were being kept brisk for little boys who were heedless of sacred matters his home teaching convinced him of that and his mother was so strong so courageous the only strong and courageous influence he knew in some vague way says mr Payne, he set them down the fearful spectacles of escaping slaves caught and beaten and sold as warnings or punishments designed to give him a taste for a better life warnings in short not to tempt providence himself not to play with freedom he felt that it was his own conscience that made these things torture him that was his mother's idea and he had a high respect for her moral opinions naturally and she punished him and pleaded with him alternately with one inevitable result to fear god and dread the sunday school he wrote to mr howells in later years exactly described that old feeling which i used to have and he tells us also that as a boy he wanted to be a preacher because it never occurred to me that a preacher could be damned can we not see that already the boy whose interests and preferences and activities diverge from those of the accepted type had become in his eyes the bad boy 
that individuality itself not to mention the creative life had become for him identical with sin end of chapter two part one recording by lucretia b